Hello, this podcast is brought to you by Conquer Cancer, the ASCO Foundation. Our mission is to accelerate breakthroughs in life-saving cancer research and empower people everywhere to conquer cancer. You can make a lasting, sustained impact by making a monthly gift at conquer.org slash monthly. Welcome to Your Stories, a podcast where we hear candid stories from people conquering cancer. I am your host, Dr. Mark Lewis. For some families, cancer is in their genes, but this doesn't stop Hattie Sherman and her mother, Molly Sherman, from conquering it. This duo shares an important experience in common. They both personally know what it's like to navigate the turbulence and challenges that breast cancer brings. Hattie is a third-generation survivor of hereditary breast cancer, with her mother, Molly, and her grandmother having experienced the diagnosis as well. Fortunately, as advances in cancer research continue, treatments are vastly improving for each generation of patients. Today, we're joined by Hattie and Molly, along with their oncologist, Dr. Deborah Pitt. An ASCO board member and a Conquer Cancer grant recipient, Dr. Pat understands the long-term impact of donor-funded research on improvements in cancer treatment from one generation to the next. Hattie and Molly will talk with us about their intergenerational experiences with cancer, and Dr. Pat will add scientific insight about the past, present, and future of breast cancer care. So I am so excited to be talking to all of you today. Uh, before we get started, let's just hear where each of you are coming from. I think it's uh, deep in the heart in Texas. Is that right, Hattie? <laughs> it is. I'm here in Austin, Texas. And you as well, Molly? Yes, I'm in Austin as well. And Dr. Pat, I think that suggests that you're probably there too. I'm here also in Austin, Texas. Yes. Wonderful. I have a, a personal connection to Austin. I, I moved there from Scotland when I was quite young. That was a little bit of culture shock. And this is a terrible radio for our listeners, but over my shoulder here, one of my certificates on my wall is actually a honorary Texan certificate. So when I married my wife, who's a native Texan, the governor was kind enough to bestow upon me honorary status. So I always have a soft spot for Texans, and I'm really, really thrilled to talk to you guys today. So Hattie, I want to start with you. One of the things that we talk about in this podcast is outside of the science, the experience, actually the humanity of cancer and patients with cancer. Can you walk us through how you felt in the moment that you received your diagnosis? What was that experience like for you? Shocked, obviously. Uh, it was a little bit after my 27th birthday. I just found a mass in my chest, wiping soap off my chest in the shower. It was about a Tootsie Roll size. Luckily, I was visiting Austin. It was end of COVID. I was applying for jobs here. I just received a job. And so I think normally, like most 27-year-olds, I probably wouldn't have given it a second thought. But being in Austin and being near my mom, um, she pushed me to get it checked out. And so I saw Dr. Pat. And she was the one who gave me the diagnosis. She and the rest of her team were my mom's team 10 years ago. So I felt extremely comfortable with them. I trusted that whatever she said goes. We early on, it was only stage zero. I decided to go ahead and do a full delmasectomy, which to me sounded like way more than I thought I would have to do for something caught so early on, but I'm forever grateful because in the end, that's all I had to do. But I'd obviously watched my mom and grandmother go through the same process 10 and five years before. I mean, they both went through their treatment with immense positivity. And so I think it was hard not to kind of attack my diagnosis with the same mental state. 
That's really powerful. Dr. Pat and I sometimes use this phrase in, in medicine, continuity of care, which typically means following one patient sort of all the way through their, their process or their journey, if that's the language that resonates with you. But it sounds like in your case, it's actually your whole family, what we might technically call your kindred, has been in Dr. Pat's capable hands. And I can imagine that confers comfort even when you're dealing with the uncertainty of a new diagnosis. Patty, you've already mentioned that you know this has impacted other people in your family. What do you want listeners to know about the potential differences in how a hereditary cancer might affect one generation to the next? I think the first thing that really shocked us was because it's hereditary, it doesn't mean that your cancer type will necessarily be the same. When my grandmother was diagnosed, her cancer type was different. We had already been told we weren't BRCA positive, so we just saw that as another reason to assume we did not have hereditary breast cancer. So I think that's one important thing to know. And I also think that you have need to be your own advocate if you know your family history. Right now, there are two genes which make you BRCA positive, two mutations of the BRCA gene, and they think there are hundreds of others, which we actually fall in that category. We are not BRCA positive, but we all have the same BRCA mutation. So when you don't fall in that category, you, you have wonderful doctors like Dr. Pat, but you do kind of have to take a stand and do your own research and be your own advocate and make sure you're doing the work to make sure you're properly being looked after. And then Molly, uh, can you tell us what it was like to receive your diagnosis? And then additionally, you know, as a mother and a survivor, how did you feel when Hattie was diagnosed? Well, my, my diagnosis was also a shock. My mother actually was diagnosed before me about eight years before, I think. And hers was considered at the time to not be related because hers was postmenopausal and mine was premenopausal. We didn't therefore anticipate having any genetic disposition because at the time, the oncologist, the one I was at MD Anderson initially, suggested that these were not related. But again, given my age and I was in the process of undergoing a divorce and had four little girls at home, it was quite a shock. And I opted for the double mastectomy when just a lumpectomy followed by radiation would have been the protocol at the time. And then following, I guess, the testing on the tumor, the oncotyping, the folks at MD Anderson, as well as Dr. Pat, working with Dr. Pat from Austin, decided that I should have some chemo as well. So I underwent six months of chemo. Then thinking that we did not have, I, at the time I was tested and there was a mutation of an undetermined significance. We didn't know at the time that my mother had it as well, but we didn't really give that a second thought. And when Hattie had that lump exactly two years ago, I really didn't think it was anything. I said, you know, you've had cysts before, but why don't you go ahead and call the doctor? And within two days, Dr. Pat had her under her wing and said, absolutely, this is something and we need to take care of it. And then looking back, I'm glad that I opted for the double mastectomy and sort of just took it in stride. This is what I'm going to do. And the girl saw me do that sort of matter-of-factly. And I am so blessed that we undertook it with that attitude because now Hattie had one two years ago and then her twin sister, Mary Alice, will have a prophylactic double mastectomy in two weeks. So it's sort of a fact of life with us now. It sounds like you've lived through advances in both our diagnostic understanding and, and treatments. And we'll hear about that from Dr. Pat in just a second. I will clarify or kind of expound upon one of the terms you use there. So you, you used a phrase like, variant of unknown significance or uncertain significance. Just for our listeners, for over two decades now, we've known what we think to be the normal 
sequence of human DNA. So when the Human Genome Project was finished, we had a sense. It's three billion letters long. So every strand of DNA in your body has these three billion pairs of letters. And we have a sense now of what we consider normal, which means that we can either test people or, as was also mentioned, tumors and look for deviations from what we consider a normal sequence. Now, not all of those deviations are meaningful, meaning not all of them are clinically harmful, but some are clearly what we call pathogenic, and others are in this gray area where we have to admit what we don't know, and we have an evolving understanding of which mutations cause disease and which are just, like I said, benign variations from this three billion letter sequence. So it sounds like when you were first diagnosed, there was this variant of unknown significance, but it seems to have held actually quite profound significance for your family. So Dr. Pat, with that, can you tell us a little bit about your approach to treating Patty? In what ways has sort of her family's history influenced your care plan for her? Sure. It's a great question, Dr. Lewis. So first of all, I'll say that I first came to know the Sherman family with Molly. These are a group of incredibly bright and talented and beautiful women. The year that Molly was diagnosed, I can remember as their family was going through so much and Molly was getting treatment, she had this um, holiday card picture of Molly and her four daughters all in pink wigs for their holiday card. You know, they're all just beautiful and bright and talented. And so what a privilege, first of all, to take care of the Sherman ladies because they're amazing. But, you know, as, as I got to know Molly and we tested her, you know, appropriately for genetic alterations that could have increased her risk. And our first decision was that oh, it doesn't look like there's any clearly identifiable heritable risk because, you know, she has a BRCA mutation of uncertain significance. And most of the time, those turn out to be non-deleterious or non-pathogenic in nature. However, when her 27-year-old daughter came up with the same mutation and then a breast cancer uh, at such a young age, you know, there's no question that there is a family trait that is contributing to breast cancer risk. And so, you know, whether it's that particular mutation or one that we don't have characterized, clearly we know that the Sherman family has a risk that is heritable. So it did influence my decision as I counseled Hattie on how we think about her treatment. She had aggressive surgery, which I think was the right thing. And I think that now we need to think about the whole trust of the Sherman ladies and make sure that we assess their, you know, their risk appropriately because knowledge is power and we have the ability to think about risk and either screen or take prophylactic measures as necessary. I love that. So it sounds like your experience taking care of Molly, you know, truly informed how you approached Hattie's care. And, and I applaud you. You and I both know there's a, a word that we never want to see associated with family history and oncology, and that word is non-contributory. That is a tiny bit of jargon, which typically means a family history was not taken. But I think you and I both share the belief that uh, a good family history can be incredibly illuminating. In your case, you kind of put the clues together and saw this pattern emerge, you know, kind of two points make a line. And what was happening with the Sherman women was compelling enough to you to say, you know what? Yes, it got labeled as a variant of you know, uncertain or unknown significance, but there's this clear importance and an obvious hereditary link that then informed your approach to Hattie. Hattie and Molly, you know, in your experience, did you see differences in the treatment approach between your experience, Molly, and then Hattie's? And I realized there was probably a gap in time there, but did that look different to the two of you? It did because my tumor was not as aggressive as Hattie's. 
So the choices I had were, uh, mine was hormonally fed. It was, remind me, Dr. Pat. Estrogen positive. Yeah, estrogen positive. So mine could have easily been treated with chemo. And Hattie's as a triple negative tumor was a different animal. Although I opted to have a double mastectomy, I didn't have to. It could have been treated less aggressively. Whereas I think Hattie's had to be treated aggressively right from the bat. Also, I think by the time that Hattie was diagnosed, we had this appreciation that at 27 with a breast cancer, with a mother and a grandmother with breast cancer, that she was at increased risk for developing other breast cancers in her lifetime. Right. Which then it kind of ties into Mary Alice, my identical twin. Another thing about our family, which I don't think has been stated yet, is my sisters were all identical twins. So I have a twin and then there's another set of twins at seven years younger. And being identical means we share the same DNA. So the fact that I had breast cancer so young most likely means that Mary Alice, my twin sister, would have that gene as well. So that's why she's undergoing a mastectomy in two weeks. Yeah. And probably by the time this recording comes out, you know, she'll have been through that operation. So we certainly wish her the best. Shadi, is it fair to say the Angelina effect, of course, was this phenomenon, I think about 10 years ago now when Angelina Jolie announced her BRCA mutation that was clearly pathogenic. And I think she made, frankly, the quite brave decision to share you know, with the world her choice to undergo preventative surgery. I'm not even trying to be glib. Did that have any influence on you at all? Because I think on a cultural level, it really raised awareness. Right. I don't know if Angelina Jolie directly affected me, but I did have a girlfriend. I was living in um, New York before I moved here, and she made the difficult decision to undergo a double mastectomy prophylactically. And I think having at that point already seen my mom and grandmother go through that, I was like, wow, this is, that's, this sounds crazy, but saying like, this is the future. This is being able to take your future in your hands and have some control. And she was extremely open and talk to people about her experience. So I think that had a, a large effect on me. And I think it's had a large effect on my sister as well. I just think having someone that you love and care about and admire, I think in this case, it's more my mother doing that. Of course, it has an effect and gives you kind of that extra push to see like, okay, this is doable. This is something I can conquer. Thank you for saying that. And I just want to acknowledge your courage. I still think it takes a tremendous amount of bravery to publicize not just a cancer diagnosis, but one that is a hereditary in origin. I certainly admired Angelina then, thinking it might endanger her career, although I think she's doing pretty well. And then I think we also need to acknowledge, you know, the double-edged sword here is, yes, confirming a hereditary predisposition that's certainly early in your life. You know, it's kind of a case of forewarned is forearmed. You took that information, you took what had happened to women in your family, and you made a really important decision for you that was sort of like an ounce of prevention as a pound of cure. You underwent, let's be honest, radical surgery, uh, but one that I certainly hope will be you know, life-preserving and life-sustaining for you. On the other hand, I think it's important in the context of this conversation, we acknowledge the incomplete protection of the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act. And what that means is, and I apologize for going off on a tangent here, but this is an important soapbox for me to stand on. Before patients undergo genetic testing, at least in my practice, I strongly advise them to talk to genetic counselors. And it's not that I can't interpret a report, but A, they do this all the time and they're much more adept at it than I am. And B, it can sort of help patients and families walk through the potential pitfalls. So for instance, being labeled with a hereditary mutation can affect certain forms of insurance. Your employer can't fire you because of it. You have protection against that. And actually your, your health insurance should not be directly affected. However, however, 
the GINA legislation, which passed in sort of the late aughts, still left some loopholes. So you can still see your life insurance premiums go up. You can still see your disability insurance go up. And while you might not be thinking about it when you're in your late 20s, it can also affect your long-term care insurance. So I just think it's important to realize we still have a kind of a semi-porous lack of protection for patients being diagnosed with hereditary syndromes. And I'll explain at the end why I feel so passionately about that. But on the whole, I think that the way that you and your family under Dr. Pat's guidance have used this information is really illustrative of how it can help you protect your health both now and the future. And I certainly hope that that'll be the same for your twin sister and that her surgery will go smoothly. Thank you. So for all three of you, this is an amazing example of a family where intergenerational care is having an impact and progress being made in the field of cancer is really measurable, I think, in your kindred throughout the years. Can any of you explain what you'd like donors to know about the impact of funding for cancer research? When Molly was diagnosed and we tested her, our best assessment was that there was not a heritable risk that we identified. And when Hattie then contributed to that picture, we really changed our thinking. The difference between that time span is that additional research that had to be funded contributed to our understanding. And so when we did additional testing, we sent off for extended panels. And those will probably continue to develop because as we know, while the number of commercial tests that we perform looking for hereditary cancer risk is relatively limited, we do know that there are hundreds and hundreds of genes associated with heritable cancer. And so that will continue to evolve over time. There are these other Sherman women that we need to protect. And so our ability to understand this better and better over time becomes really important because in my perfect world, knowledge is power. And we want to be able to identify exactly what it is that we think is doing this so we can then test for it and prevent disease in everyone else. So I think that comes over time, really through research and investments in research. And I think it's why I feel so strongly about the Conquer Cancer Foundation. I think why Molly and Hattie have been so great about being advocates and supporting cancer research is because we know that through investments in research, we have better answers and we can empower women to have better lives. Hattie, I hope this is an appropriate question, but why did you decide to pursue genetic testing, and it sounds like this has also influenced your siblings. What do you want our podcast listeners to understand about the importance of these tests as you see them? Well, I think me personally, in a good way, I didn't have a choice. I had seen my mom do it. And so I knew as soon as I was diagnosed that getting that testing would help out all three of my sisters. So in my mind, that was a no-brainer. I wanted to make sure that they were properly being looked after and knew their risk factors. But I think an important point, and it kind of ties into something that Dr. Pat just brought up, is the more people that can get genetic tested, the better it helps all of us. I think making that bank as large as we can, like families that have, say they've already, someone's already been tested like my mom was, okay, we're told we're not BRCA positive. Don't assume, okay, check mark, we're okay, we don't need to worry. But if you can get genetic tested, it may not give you an answer right away. But having your information out there, but they're learning more all the time. And so it'll benefit you in the future, but also it benefits all families like us. Yeah, sort of a case of a rising tide lifts all boats. You know, I think what Dr. Pat and I would admit is that our field, oncology, is still in its infancy, maybe in its adolescence, but it is far from mature. And, you know, we're going to look back years from now at this time 
And there are going to be things that we're doing in the moment that are going to seem, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, ignorant or short-sighted. But there's a couple of things I want listeners to know is, number one, we are doing our absolute best with our current understanding. Number two, really the only way forward, the only way to progress short of sheer luck is research, is coming up with thoughtful questions and interrogating them with rigorous experimentation. But your point, Hattie, is a really good one, is that genetic testing actually expands our knowledge. Really, I'm going to be kind of hyperbolic here as a species of what mutations matter and which ones, as I said earlier, are essentially inconsequential. I think the reason I feel such a a close bond with all three of you is twofold. Number one is geographic. So I used to live in Austin. But more importantly, when we moved there, my father was diagnosed with cancer. In fact, he was taken care of by one of Dr. Pat's colleagues. And at the time, this would be late 80s, early 90s, there was no obvious familial pattern to my father's cancer. And in fact, I'm an only child. I know for a fact, my parents asked this excellent oncologist, listen, do you see a pattern here? And at the time he said no. But here's the point is that our knowledge evolves both generally and specifically or personally. And when I became sick more than a decade later, and at the time I was a medical trainee and had just enough knowledge to be dangerous, I thought, huh, this seems to me like a little bit more than a coincidence. And where I'm going with this, Hattie, is I had my formal genetic testing in 2009. And our mutation, our family's mutation, was actually only described two years prior in 2007. And it was contributed by a single person who I'm never going to meet. An anonymous man in Sweden was diagnosed with our condition, which is called multiple endocrine neoplasia type 1. And his mutation got added to the database, which then expanded how that testing is done across the globe. So I'll never meet this person, but I am profoundly grateful to them because just to your point, their willingness to be tested expanded our knowledge, meant that when I was tested, I was rightly labeled as having a pathogenic mutation, and that's profoundly affected me and my family. So as we close, I'll ask all three of you to kind of tackle the the question, what does cancer research saving lives mean to you? And I might start with you, Dr. Pat. I think it's a remarkable time in cancer discovery. And while we may only be in our adolescence in terms of how we think about the, the field evolving, Most patients, even with advanced cancer, are able now to live with cancer as a chronic disease. And so, you know, they get to work in their jobs and sleep in their beds next to their spouses and pick up their kids from soccer and eat at their dinner tables. And that's living the dream to have cancer, even advanced cancer, for most patients, be like hypertension or diabetes is for anyone else. We all hope that all cancer will be cured. But until that comes to pass, being able to either cure it or live with it chronically is really amazing. And the only way that we get there is continued investments in research. And that becomes really important and more important now than ever in America as the age demographic of the population is changing and we all get older. So, you know, cancer frequently being a disease related to aging is going to become more common. So being able to find it early through good screening and treat it appropriately matters. And research is how we get there. In my time as a cancer specialist, so I've been in practice here for 17 years, the field of cancer has completely changed. My ability to care for breast cancer patients has just completely changed. The fact that the conversation I have with folks whenever they come in with familial disorders, Dr. Lewis, like you mentioned, this pre-implantation testing issue, you know, how many patients have I seen that came in to me and said, Dr. Pat, I've lost my sister and my mother and my aunt. 
and this will never again happen to my family, and that I can offer to them something different. It's an amazing time. So it's really only through investments and research that we continue to make that progress. And I think it's why we who touch cancer feel so compelled of its importance. And I'm so grateful to have champions like Hattie and Molly that really, you know, participate in philanthropy and think about how we can continue to advance this in a meaningful and thoughtful way. Thank you so much for that, Dr. Pat. Hattie or or Molly, any additional comments from you? I think Dr. Pat said that perfectly. (laughs) I don't know if I can follow that answer. I'll follow just by saying that the field has evolved so much. uh, And Dr. Pat, you'll appreciate this. So I recently recertified my board exam. So I'd taken it coming out of fellowship. I've been practicing now for just over a decade. So I recertified last fall. And I, I kid you not, I think you'll appreciate this. The content was almost entirely different than what I was tested on 10 years ago. And it was funny. I actually said to my wife, I said, you know, I really loved my fellowship. I thought my training was excellent. But almost every sort of regimen I learned to prescribe there has now become obsolete. Like we just have better treatments. And it's a wonderful problem to have, the pace of progress. But I think that the theme I keep coming back to is it's not a mistake that we are making progress. It's actually the result of quite deliberate efforts. And those efforts require funding. So I think that's where philanthropy, it's not just an abstraction. It's a real, tangible contribution to the progress that's occurring in the field. Molly, I have an important question for you. It's one we ask on every podcast, and I think you're an excellent person to answer it. How are you conquering cancer? Personally, I I work in the healthcare field um, with St. David's Healthcare. So my day-to-day work is in that general realm. We do have the blood cancer hospital here in Austin. And then now that it's such a personal thing in our lives, Hattie and I both, I think, are sort of the people that our colleagues and our friends come to when they have a diagnosis of breast cancer. And we immediately, of course, send them to Texas Oncology and Dr. Pat. But we want to do what we can to spread the word, especially about genetic cancers, because I do have so many friends who have said, well, my mother had it or my grandmother had it, but we don't have that gene. And you want to say, well, you know, you may want to check again or be tested again if if it's been over a decade since since you were tested. So I hope that Hattie and I at least um, are doing what we can, not only to raise funds, but raise awareness and, you know, just keep beating the drum for philanthropy and awareness. You're doing a wonderful job. And objectively, from the outside, I can tell that your openness will help not just others, but it's actually been profoundly important for your own family and and the care of of your daughters. And Dr. Pat is clearly a wonderful oncologist, but I think it also took your candor and your understandable instinct as a, as a mother to want to protect your children with the knowledge that you gained, sort of hard-earned wisdom that you gained. So thank you for sharing that. Hattie, any, uh, any comments to add there? I think being so young when I was diagnosed, granted, I know I was very lucky we caught it early. I didn't have to go through all the hoops that a lot of my peers have that I've met. But I think having walked that path young, I have a unique opportunity to allow my age group to see this is possible. This is something that I think my age group thinks we can easily punt to a worry as in our 40s and 50s, maybe 60s, but I'm a walking example that this is a possibility. And something that's brought me a ton of joy and really enriched my life is how I've been able to be a resource for people in my age group that maybe have had a family member be diagnosed or been diagnosed themselves. And um, I've made a ton of friends, some that I've most I actually haven't met that are walking this path now. And it's been incredibly rewarding. 
Yeah, I've heard some of my patients say to one another, this is the club they never wanted to join, but that membership has its privileges, which I think is well said. On top of that, you've got the, the family connection as well. Dr. Pat, I can see why you have such affection for the Sherman family. Uh, I know you and I try to be impartial as doctors, but uh, it's hard not to like them as people. And that clearly comes across uh, even in the conversation today. I'll let you have the final word on, on your definition of, of conquering cancer. Yeah, you know, Dr. Lewis, I think that we need to continually make progress and move forward. And I would say, as we think about how to conquer cancer, you and I think about it differently, you know, because not only is it to have effective treatments, but it's to be as effective as we can be at the exact right moment in time. And I'll say that it's why I love the Conquer Cancer Foundation so much, and specifically the Young Investigator Award grant, because having been a trainee, Finishing my fellowship at the MD Anderson, I just had my second child, was uh, young and about to start life after a long bit of training. Investments in research at that moment in time are so critical in a young investigator's career path that it makes them choose how they contribute to the field of cancer medicine and the field of cancer surgery. So I think that the Conquer Cancer Foundation and the Young Investigator Award grant specifically it's really the right intervention for people to invest in cancer research because it's the right measure at the right time during a critical time when people are making those decisions. We have to think a lot about how and when and where we intervene as cancer specialists. And in my mind, this is really the perfect investment in how we make progress. I can't say it any better than that. Dr. Pat and uh, the Sherman ladies, thank you so much for talking to our listeners today. Really, really appreciate the conversation. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Yeah, you bet. And thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Conquer Cancer, the ASCO Foundation. For doctor-approved patient information, please visit cancer.net, which is supported in part by Conquer Cancer donors. Conquer Cancer is creating a world where cancer is prevented or cured and every survivor is healthy. You can make a lasting, sustained impact by making a monthly gift at conquer.org slash monthly. The participants of this podcast report no conflicts of interest relevant to this podcast. Full disclosures can be found on the episode page on conquer.org. The purpose of this podcast is to educate and to inform. This is not a substitute for professional medical care and is not intended for use in the diagnosis or treatment of individual conditions. Guests on this podcast express their own opinions, experience, and conclusions. Guest statements on the podcast do not express the opinions of ASCO. The mention of any product, service, organization, activity, or therapy should not be construed as an ASCO endorsement. 